Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. It is truly an honor to be with you here this morning just to share God's Word together. And so uh, while I'm giving this introduction, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we'll begin at verse 1. Whether you're looking in a paper Bible or your electronic device doesn't make any difference. If you didn't come with either of those, you can grab that Bible right in front of you. And that's, I'll give you a clue, that's on page 947. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and a greeting to those that are watching online as well. Uh, you're welcome with us as we talk today about that great cloud of witnesses and keeping our eyes on Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now let me just pause for a moment. If anybody ever asks you, what is faith? This is where you take them. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made, not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God didn't start with ingredients when he created. He created from nothing. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, murdered by his brother, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, which would be rain and a flood, right? In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. God didn't say, go to this place. He just said, go, and I'll show you where it is. Verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is, uh, is God. He wasn't talking about an earthly city, but the new Jerusalem that will be in heaven. By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, herself received power to conceive, even she, when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, God, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, if you'll skip down to verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered God 
that God was able even to raise him, to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites out of slavery and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict, which was to have all of the male Hebrew children killed at the point of birth. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter who had adopted him choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. These are the great men and women of faith. These are, were leaders. They were the patriarchs of the faith. They were greatly respected. They were relied upon for spiritual guidance. And their contemporaries and the people that they led held these people listed in Hebrews 11 in very high regard. And as a matter of fact, we still hold them in high regard, don't we? Abel, Enoch, Noah... Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to stand before these people, I would feel intimidated. Abel was the example of a man who lived a godly life and paid the ultimate price for it. He was not only the world's first victim of murder, he was also essentially the world's first martyr because he was killed, he was murdered for obeying God. Enoch. Here was a man who walked so closely with God that God simply transported him to heaven instead of having him live longer and die a natural death. That's, that's uh, one of only two times that it has ever happened in human history. The other being um, Elijah who was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. You just thought that was a movie, right? That's amazing and it's impressive. Noah was a man who stood alone in his faith in God. He lived in a time when people were universally corrupt, so much so that God said he would destroy the human race. Now, we think that we live in corrupt times, but this was even worse. This was so bad that God said, I am wiping out everybody except for this one righteous man and his family. But Noah lived upright, and he declared God's plan of salvation for that generation. And even though he, was, he did this, even though he was ignored at best and ridiculed at worst. Abraham, I mean, what more can you say about Abraham, right? He's known as the father of the faithful and the friend of God. He received direct revelation from God, and he was an incredibly patient man because he was given a promise by God and had to wait 25 years to see the fulfillment of that promise, which came at just the right time. Sarah, Abraham's wife, 
God made a promise to Sarah that she would have a baby, her very first child, when she was 90 years old. How many of you women past the age of, let's say, 50 are looking forward to something like that? And yet she believed God's promise. Isaac, he was known for his submission to God, for trusting in God, for his deep devotion, and as a man of prayer. Jacob, he was blessed with sons who became the foundation of the nation of Israel. Quite often this nation is referred to as the sons of Jacob. And he is the only person that we know of who ever wrestled with an angel. Joseph, and we're not speaking now of Jesus' earthly father, the husband of Mary, but the one from the Old Testament. He was faithful to God in very difficult circumstances that were not of his own doing. He is a great example to us of resisting temptation. Remember when Potiphar's wife tried to lure him into a, a wrong relationship, he just ran Later in his life, he enjoyed great prosperity, but he was not spoiled by it, which is rare. God gave him the ability to interpret dreams, and he is a great example of how to forgive people, in his example, his own brothers, who tried to do great harm to him. Moses was a great leader of God's chosen people, but really the most impressive thing that I can tell you about Moses is that we're told that God spoke to Moses like someone would speak to a friend. It really doesn't get any better than that. But let's just remember that these were just ordinary men and women who served an extraordinary God. Now, I came across some information on Focus on the Family's website, and it takes many of these same names that we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, but it shows another side of them. Noah got drunk and exposed himself. This happened after he had watched God judge wicked people and saved his family. Abraham was a liar. He lied about his wife, Sarah, who was so beautiful that he was afraid that a a foreign king would take her as his wife and kill him. And he said, oh, no, she's just my sister in order to save his own skin. And guess what? He didn't just do that once. He did it twice. So in these instances, not only was Abraham a liar, but he was a coward and anything but a gentleman. Isaac, he showed favoritism between his two sons, treating one better than the other. And he lied also like his father had about his beautiful wife. Didn't learn anything from his father about that, did he? Jacob was a deceiver. He tricked his father, his blind father, into getting the blessing that should have gone to his older brother. It shows a despicable lack of respect for his father, and it doesn't say much about his relationship with his brother either. Joseph, early in his life, was a braggart and showed a lack of wisdom. Remember, he had a dream, a dream that God had given to him and a dream that was true that said that his brothers would bow down before him and serve him. Now, while that was true, it was not information that needed to be shared with his brothers. It just made them jealous. Moses was a murderer. He was trying to do God's will, but he was doing it his own way. 
in his desire to protect a Hebrew slave from being mistreated by an Egyptian taskmaster, he killed that Egyptian and then tried to bury him in the sand in order to hide what he had done. Uh, some of the others that I didn't read about but are also listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Rahab, she is in the Messianic ancestral line of Jesus, but she had been a prostitute. I don't need to say any more about that, do I? King David was an adulterer and a murderer, the greatest king of Israel, a man that is described as a man after God's own heart, looked at his neighbor's wife while she was taking a bath, and then sent a servant over to get her and bring her back so that he could have an adulterous relationship with her. And then she got pregnant, and when he found out about that, he tried to cover it up many different ways, and eventually he had her husband murdered. Elijah, he was clinically depressed and suicidal. After the greatest success of his life, standing alone against the prophets of Baal and winning, he was threatened by a woman and he ran away, claiming that he was the only person on the entire planet who still served God. And then he begged God to let him die. Jonah ran from God rather than to obey him. Can you imagine having God tell you very specifically what he wants you to do, and instead of doing that, you do just the opposite? Well, of course you do, and so do I, because we do the same thing, don't we? We know exactly what God wants us to do. It's all written right here, but do we always do it? And then God showed great grace and mercy to this sinful nation and granted repentance to all of them. And what does Jonah do? He starts talking smack to God. I knew you'd do this. This is just like you. Let me go to the New Testament. The Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well was divorced more than once. Before running into town and telling everyone that she had found the Savior, by the way, what an incredible evangelist. The Samaritan woman had lived a very promiscuous life. She had been married and divorced five times, and the man that she was now living with was not her husband. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Can you imagine anything more frightening than that? Martha was a chronic worrier. Am I going to have enough food? Is, is Mary ever going to come in the kitchen and help me? If Jesus had just come, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. The disciples fell asleep when Jesus asked them to pray for him. He was counting on them. He needed them to pray for him, and instead they took a nap. Peter denied Christ three times. When the whole world, the natural world and the supernatural world was turning against Jesus, his best friend Peter denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And Paul was the accomplice of a murder of an innocent and godly man. Before becoming the greatest missionary and theologian of all time, Paul stood by and watched with approval as a mob threw rocks. And we're not talking about little skipping stones that you use at Lake Erie. We're talking about rocks that are the size of your fist that they threw at an innocent man until he died. As we read those first verses, the ones from Hebrews chapter 11, the place that we often call God's hall of faith 
I think it's almost like watching an Avengers movie. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Black Widow, Hawkeye, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses. And many of us probably wonder if these biblical superheroes had superpowers. In other words, did they have something that we don't have access to that enabled them to live such incredible spiritual lives? But they didn't have superpowers. We have the same abilities, and yes, I guess you could call it a superpower that they did. And what is that superpower? All those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been given the superpower of Jesus himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, if you'll turn there, John chapter 14, that's on page 847 of that Pew Bible, Jesus tells his followers that he is no longer going to be with them physically on earth. That must have been frightening and disheartening. But he does promise basically superpower for his followers. Let me pick this up in John 14, verse 16. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you, he's talking to his followers, not just to everybody, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then dropping down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, more than ever, we need to be reminded that when we entered the Christian life through faith, we didn't enter a playground, we entered a battleground. When we entered into a relationship with Jesus and were initiated into his body, which is the church, we were thrust onto a spiritual battlefield. Yes, we are shielded and given the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And these things can never be taken away from us. But these are provisions for the battle, not to excuse us from the battle. The book of Hebrews was originally written to men and women who were in the middle of a battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Most of them were quite scared. Some of them had retreated to the trenches and were not even any longer engaged in the spiritual battle. And many were tempted to run away. Now they're being urged through this book to endure with hope, hope that responds to God. God wants them to lean on his son, Jesus, the only one who can give them the strength to endure and press on in the faith. Now, let's go back to our original text in Hebrews, and we'll pick it up in chapter 12. This is page 948. Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to read the first two verses here. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, don't let this break between chapter 11 and chapter 12 distract you. The Bible was not written with chapter breaks and with numbered verses. Those were added about 1,500 years after the last book of the Bible was written. And they're just added to help us in our reading and in our study and in our memorization of Scripture. Hebrews was written like you would write a letter to a friend. How many of you remember letters? <laughs> uh, those are, are kind of like emails, but with grammar. Or maybe like a text message that's on paper, but without emojis. So consider these two chapters as something that was meant to be read together. You know, in a textbook in school, chapter 11 might be about this topic and chapter 12 about a different topic. But these are about the same thing. This is just one continuous study here. So we have this great cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, those are all of the Bible heroes that we just read about in chapter 11. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses and many more. There are more that I didn't read about. We didn't read all the verses of chapter 11, but some of those were Rahab uh, and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel, the prophets. And then it says, and many more unnamed women and men. These are our witnesses, and there's a great cloud of them. And you know what? As I thought about this, and I thought about the ones that are called unnamed men and women, you know who else is in that, that cloud of witnesses? Our loved ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know what? For me, that's my grandma and my grandpa Martin, my grandma and my grandpa Sheffield, my dad, people who have preceded me to heaven who are part of my great cloud of witnesses. We read that these witnesses are surrounding us. Now, that might sound a little intimidating, you know, why are they surrounding us? To spy on us? Maybe to catch us doing something that Jesus missed and tell on us? No, it's to encourage us. As we read their stories and remember how they lived, we are encouraged to live a life that it is for Jesus. We're told we're encouraged to lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely can you identify with that? I can. Does it sometimes feel like walking through this life that you're being weighed down by the weight of this world? Now, we read our news feeds and that weighs us down, doesn't it? As I was preparing this message this past week, I opened up my news app to give you some examples. And these are some of the things that I read about. Government agencies being used in inappropriate ways. The collapse of Afghanistan that happened a year ago. A model stabbing her boyfriend to death. The U.S. economy missing job expectation marks in August. Sex trafficking that is on the rise in New York. 
school districts that are trying to normalize sexual sin. Crime surging across the country. And yes, a warning from farmers that ketchup, salsa, and pasta sauce could soon be in short supply. I know for some of you that newsflash might be very disturbing, and after this message, you're probably going to McDonald's to start hoarding ketchup packets. But honestly, the news can be very depressing, and it can weigh us down. Even more disturbing, I think, than, than that would be for any of us that is trying to live a Christ-like life is the next part of this verse, where it says, let us also lay aside the sin which clings so closely. The New American Standard Translation puts it this way, let us lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. This summer, I've been trying to clear away ivy that's grown behind our garage. And if you know anything about ivy, it grows in these vines. And as you walk through the ivy, it entangles your feet and trips you up. I also thought of uh, something that Sir Walter Scott wrote in the 1800s. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. What that means is that when you lie or act dishonestly, that you are initiating problems and this domino effect of complications which will eventually spiral out of control. Why do we want to lay aside these things that weigh us down and the sin that entangles us? So that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the race, that is just a poetic way of talking about the life that we're living. By running the race, not just coasting through life, but to live life with purpose. When you run a race, what happens if you're looking behind you? If I'm trying to run this way and I'm looking behind me, pretty soon I'm either going to trip, fall down, run into something or someone. But what if you're looking at, you're distracted by the people running on either side of you? I had this happen yesterday as Cindy and I were running at the peninsula. I, I put my phone with the app open for my running on my arm. And as I was running, I wanted to see how far I had gone so far. And so I start looking at my arm like this, and pretty soon I'm running over here like this. That's what happens to us, right? You look to the side, you look at other people, you get distracted, and you're being pulled in that direction. Where should you be looking when you're running a race? In front of you. You should be looking at the finish line. You should be focusing on your goal. When you're running the race of life, don't allow yourself to be distracted. Don't let your focus be what happened yesterday or last month or last year. Don't let your focus be on somebody else's life. Focus on your goal and keep your eyes on Jesus. Why should we look at Jesus? Because he is the founder and perfecter or the finisher of our faith. Let me give you an illustration. When the Olympic Games of 1964 were held in Tokyo, Japan, <clears throat> Sri Lanka sent their athletes, and one of those athletes was a 10,000-meter runner, and his name was, I have to look down at this because I had to write it phonetically, Renantanj Karananada. And I could not say that again if my life depended on it. 
So he's running the 10,000-meter race, which was won by Billy Mills, and I don't have to look down to get that one right. Billy Mills was of the United States, and when he passed the finish line, Renan Tunge was still four laps behind. I didn't say four lengths, four laps behind. It was reported that he wasn't feeling good that day, and that, that kind of led to this. But the spectators expected him to quit at some point, but he kept running. As he kept running alone, people began to laugh at him, and some even began to heckle him, but he still kept running. By this point, everybody is finished, or maybe they, some of the, the last ones had quit as well. When the spectators eventually realized that this unknown athlete was determined to finish the race, the jeers slowly turned to admiration, and some applause slowly started to rise from the crowd. As he started that final lap, the applause grew louder as the crowd, now inspired by his perseverance, encouraged him to complete the race. Cheers and applause erupted as that exhausted athlete eventually finished the race. He was interviewed afterwards, and Renan Tunge said, The Olympic spirit is not to win, but to take part. So I completed my rounds. In other words, he was sent by his country to represent them well. And he could not represent them well if he quit. Even finishing dead last, but finishing was more honorable than quitting. It's the same for us as we run the race of life. Don't quit because it's hard. Don't stop running the race because you're not as good as other people. Even finishing last is more honorable than quitting. And God isn't interested where you finish. God is interested in that you didn't quit, that you kept running, that you finished that fin across that finish line being faithful to Him. I know that we have all experienced disappointment in our lives. Whether you've been disappointed by a parent or a child, a spouse, or maybe an employer, or a political leader that you thought would do something that they said they would do. Or maybe you've been disappointed by a spiritual leader. Not one of us can honestly say, nobody has ever disappointed me. Don't put your focus on people. No matter how much you admire or respect them, people will ultimately disappoint you. Now, why do I say that? Am I just being a pessimist? Because that leader, that spouse, that pastor is only human. We are all in the process of sanctification. Now, I just threw out a big theological word, so let me explain what I mean. A very simple explanation of sanctification is being set apart. As Christ followers, we are called to be set apart from sin and be set apart to holiness or Christ-likeness. Sanctification uh, takes place in three different parts. The first part happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. At that point, you are justified. That means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that you're not sinning anymore, that your sin nature has been removed from you? It does not. 
The next part of sanctification is that progress from that point of justification to the point of being made completely holy. And by the way, that will not happen while you're alive. It's the sanctification process that happens as we are hopefully becoming more and more Christ-like as we go on through our life. And that last part of sanctification is called glorification. That's what happens when we meet our Savior in heaven and our sin nature is completely removed from us and we are no longer ever tempted to do something that would displease God. Isn't that something to look forward to? These three phases of sanctification separate the Christ follower from the penalty of sin that happens at justification, the power of sin as we are maturing in Christ, and then ultimately the presence of sin when we are glorified in Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the only one who will never disappoint you. When you put somebody on a pedestal, there is only one direction they can go. And that's down. But when you keep your eyes on Jesus, there is only one direction that you can go, and that's up. Jesus will never disappoint you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this great cloud of witnesses. These these lives that we can look back to and say, they followed Christ, I can do the same. And yet we, we know that none of them were perfect. None of them were superheroes. They were people just like us. And so if they can follow you, so can I. But Father, we can only do that when we keep our eyes on Jesus, our ultimate goal, the one that we want to be like. We want to be the direct reflection of your son, Jesus. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.